Ready for the interview And if you get a cue Live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo Let's have a combo Say what you feel Be real, that's the motto Real talk pronto Doctor D, PhD Hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Okay, Lou, we're here Got to talk it. about some serious stuff, but we would also have fun too. We have some fun too. Great. Thank you. So how are you doing today? I am having a swell day. How are you? Good. I'm really good. And uh, I'm really pumped that I was referred to you by, I believe, Dr. Jennifer Montjoy. Yes. What an awesome person, by the way. Completely. She has done a great job bringing together like her, the indigenous wisdom, the real Western science, being a nurse practitioner. I think she's got it going on. Most definitely. I mean, I had a great conversation with her and uh, great response to that episode. Really great. And uh, I think the same thing's going to happen here. So, I mean, we're talking psychedelics, but we're talking psychedelics in a little bit of different way. We're talking about, I want to get into the palliative care aspect of it. Yeah. First of all, how did you get introduced to psychedelics? And then secondly, how did this come about in this environment for you? Sure. Um, so I am 60 years old, which means, and I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. So that meant I was just on that tail end of it. So people I knew, you know, like dropped acid in high school, but it was sort of verboten by that, by the time I came around, but I always thought it was interesting and the things that they would talk about were interesting, but it stayed on the back burner because I was too uptight and got all those messages about, you know, the war on drugs, uh, but still had that curiosity in the back of my mind. Um, and then many years later, when I went back to uh, I was actually doing the post uh, back studies to go to med school. So after you get a degree and you have to, and you want to go to med school, you got to finish up all those pre-med prerequisites. And so in order to stay sane, I got a minor in philosophy and religion at the same time and studied uh, in indigenous wisdom, shamanic practices, those kinds of things. And, and even into uh, supernatural phenomena, end of life experiences, those kinds of things. And they tapped into, you know, a lot of cultures, um, use these substances for healing uh and you know not so much in the western culture they were really done away with but um they really uh came to the fore uh you know before the you know sort of colonialization of, of the americas uh but and, and laid low in in those cultures for a long time but then have, you know came back up uh in, into western medicine but it just really it, it set me uh thinking like, how, how could these work? And then found out that there were people at the Maryland Institute of Psychiatry who were actually doing this work way back in the 60s. Um, and then again, went down for a while, went in, into a quiet mode for a while, but again, piqued that curiosity. And then when I myself moved to uh, Baltimore to be uh, the chief medical officer of a big hospice there, Johns Hopkins announced their trial uh, working with cancer patients for the first time in 40 years doing that kind of research. Um, and because that was going around on email uh, between colleagues of mine, because it was so fascinating to us, I got a Google ad that said Hopkins researchers recruiting uh, participants in uh, psychedelic and spirituality study. Uh, so I, of course, put my hand up and uh, <laughs> got into that study. And that's with, you know, the uh, Roland Griffiths, Bill uh, Richards, Mary Casamino, all the people that people have seen, uh, you know, so much of in the most recent years. So I got to know them up close and personal. I did two high dose sessions of psilocybin uh, with them following their set and setting protocol and then did uh, six months of follow up with them. I got to know them pretty well. Because I was a doctor in the area and they were still doing the uh, cancer trial, they asked me to just help them out with like a little bit of recruiting and things. So got to know them personally pretty well. Um, and I was on the verge of, you know, seeing if I could, you know, work with them professionally when my mom called and said um, I had to come back to Omaha and take care of her uh, or at least be closer. I'm an only child. Um, and when I got here, I was really lucky that there was a philanthropist who had seen some of that work and said, why aren't we doing this work here? And word got back to me. Um, and uh, I, I, I reached out to the network and they said, we'd be uh, happy to help you facilitate this. And of course, we've got um, um, a research institution here 
Uh, and so I was able to put together a clinical trial that is uh, finally got uh, uh, the final piece of paperwork allowing us to start. So we'll be enrolling people in this trial in January. Oh so long story, but uh, but it's a pretty fun path. That's amazing. I mean, that's that's absolutely incredible. And by the way, John Hopkins, big shout out. My dad has been taken was John Hopkins took care of my dad for a long time. He had a heart transplant there and they live in the Baltimore area. And it was awesome an awesome experience. Amazing yeah. people. There. Yeah, really fine, fine health care. Yes. Um, so what's interesting about this is, you know, so you had a different opinion of this a long time ago like a lot of people did. And I did myself. Tell me a little bit before we jump into the palliative care aspect in the studies, how did being in this study change how you viewed psychedelics? You know, prior to that, it was really about the pretty colors. You know, I, I had heard the things, you know, in my youth about how dangerous they were and how, you know, back then they were, people, people were saying, oh, you're going to have genetic defects and you're going to have, you know, malformed children and all that. And I pretty much could read the tea leaves and knew that that was BS even then. But, for you know, all my friends would talk about like, oh, there are these cool colors and the trees breathe and all that. And so I had a pretty superficial understanding of uh, what they were like and what was possible. And when I did those sessions, it's some of the deepest work I've ever done in my life. Um, I, I had studied Buddhism, uh, done yoga practice, was a you know pretty decent meditator. And the Buddhists talk about like the boundless abodes, like this this boundlessness of consciousness. But when I was in, especially that first session, the sense of boundlessness of consciousness of it, there's an an eternity in there. There's more space than you could ever conquer, more um, types of experience, ranges of experience. Uh, so really the depth of it and the transformative powers of it um, really, really were um, brought home by that work. And, you know, I, you, we could cover this whole podcast with just me talking about um, those sessions. Um, and I was lucky enough um, I, I've been, uh, I, I did the, there's an, a place called the Synthesis Institute that does psychedelic training. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be in their inaugural cohort. And so was in the Netherlands and able to do wow. a legal, a legal dose again, uh, as part of their training. And again, the same, um, and, and in that, uh, realm really did transpersonal work, really work with my ancestors, work with issues that I had with my father and then work that, he needed to do with his ancestors and the difficulties of, you know, being immigrants who came to this country and worked really hard and didn't do very well for a long time. And so just the, the power of what's possible when you really get into deep consciousness is, is what hit me. I mean, I had a very similar experience as that. I mean, it's, it's truly profound. So how did you find your way into the palliative care aspect of this uh, endeavor? Yeah. So I'm originally a family doctor and that's great work because you learn about um, taking care of people in the context of their relationships and their community. So I was already very holistic and had a, uh, they called it the biopsychosocial approach where, you know, it's not just a body with a bunch of organs in it. It's a person who's in the context of all their relationships and always felt like a little short uh, on the short end of the stick there because primary care doctors get saddled with like every sore throat and filling out all the paperwork and managing, you know, and it never felt like I really got into how do you really help this person be a better person? How do you help them live a more full life? How do you help them use their body to manifest what's possible in this lifetime? Um, and that was the time when the palliative medicine field was starting to grow. And what I saw is that and also as a family doctor, I delivered babies. And so on one hand, I was uh, really saw how much you could influence families if you got their birth experiences right. If you helped them lead up to it, if you helped you know birth that baby, if you helped them with those first couple of months, you could really do transgenerational kind of, of healing and work with that family. And what I learned is that you could have a similar experience when you worked with people as someone in the family was dying. 
their emotions are are available to them and you're able to do some work with them. And so I moved from from primary care into this specialized care of people who are, are, are terminally ill, uh, who, who might have years to live, but still are facing the consequences of having this life-threatening diagnosis. But there you're still still kind of pigeonholed into there's the medical model and people come to you for medical things. And so often um, they come to, to you with a lifetime of problems and then all of a sudden they need to address them in not very long. And the tools we have to help them with that are not so good. Um, you know, uh, uh, some people do fine. I kind of break people down into the th three categories. We've got gurus who are like, you know, life is good. I've had a good family. I've traveled. I've done all that stuff. Uh, and I'm, you know, if God's taking me, it's my turn to go. And, you know, they're great. And then you have people who are kind of in the middle of the road who have some strong emotions, but you can help them through it. But there's a big chunk of us who have had you know, had trauma early in their lives, who had difficult experiences, and they never really got a chance to resolve them or, or bring them to fruition. And then you're stuck reaching the end of your life, realizing you might not have lived your life, or you might have stuff you really need to let go of. And we don't have tools for that. Uh, we can give people SSRIs, but they don't work so well. Um, therapy is slow and expensive and hard to come by. Uh, and so looking at how do we find ways to help people really reach that potential that they might not have a lot of time, but how can you help them feel connected again? How can you help them feel their range of emotion and not be stifled? And so that's why I started really looking into it. So when working with, with people in this situation, what are some of the benefits? Like what are several ways that psychedelics have, have helped patients deal with coming to terms with the end of this life, this life. And in many ways, it's a transition, like birth is a transition and death is a transition too. Yeah. what are the tangible ways that people feel that this helps them in this situation? Yeah, the first one, and, and that's such a, a good question and such a good insight into that idea of transition and cycles and wholeness, because that's what it comes down to. First, um, people begin to uh, break down the barriers and the isolation that they felt and they feel a sense of connection. And so I'm sure your listeners and you've heard of uh, Roz Watts, who was the uh, uh, lead psychologist for the Imperial uh, College Trials in London. And she even developed a, a new measurement of how do we help people really, how do we measure like you feel connected to yourself, you understand stand yourself better, you feel more connected to other people, and you feel more connected to nature. So losing that sense of isolation of, you know, people feel so alone. And when they're sick, they feel like no one could possibly understand them. And so those uh, better connections and better ability to talk about um, themselves and, and be in that present moment. And then a connection to the cycles of nature in particular. Um, we have people say, you know, I'm not afraid to live. I'm not afraid to die. I'm just comfortable. I'm comfortable. I understand. I don't, I don't want to die, but I understand there will be a time for it to happen. And it'll be fine when I do. And it's part of this just cycle of birth and death and, you know, whatever happens beyond, but a sense that this is natural. This isn't, you know, a cataclysmic event. This is something that happens to everybody. And, and, and you're just part of that ongoing, that beauty of nature that we trust in a much more, embodied way um, it, it, we see a lot of that and, and then you just get a change like that a lot of the depression and anxiety uh people have a different story they're able to um uh, i saw a, a, a woman who um just had horrible anxiety because of, of of her cancer diagnosis and she said she just saw and she realized it is just a story, just like all the storybooks. And you could go onto the bookshelf and you could uh, pull out a different story and you could and, and you could take the story you have and you can return it to the library and, put, and, and it can be, you know, gone. And just that ability is like, you know, I don't have to tell my, the story of myself as a victim. I can tell myself, you know, whatever story I want and live that more fully. So um, those are big changes for people. How... Man, that's amazing. That's actually that's so amazing. How does this affect family members? And are the family members um, maybe resistant to their loved one having this access to this potentially? 
you know, every, you know, when you work with enough families and you know that all families are different and cope with things differently, generally, um, people don't want their loved ones to suffer. And when they realize that, you know, they're frightened, they're willing to try things. And so I think that puts a lot of burden on us as care providers to make sure that we're bringing people in safely, that we have really good ethics, that we're really taking good care of them because they're putting so much trust in us. But if they can find that trusted uh, provider who can help bring these experiences to them, they feel much safer about it. Um, and then when they see the change in their loved one, um, Bill Richards talks about this for even back in, in the 60s when he was doing this work, he said that um, these patients can often become the counselors to their families because they've seen like, you know, it's almost uh, you, if you're lucky, you've not had the opportunity to work with children who are dying, but children who are dying um, often are not frightened because they still have that magical sense of they understand they're connected and they understand things are going to go on. And people will say, oh, it's just because they don't know. And I think, well, no, maybe they do know. And we're the ones who have forgotten. The adults right. are the ones who have forgotten. And so as adults, we can have that same kind of like, yeah, it's just, it's going to be okay. Whatever happens, it's going to be okay. And when the person who's sick is feeling okay, then the family feels much better. And they're able then to talk about their emotions because what I see so often is like that don't ask, don't tell rule of families where if I don't tell you how scared I am and how much I'm going to miss you, then you won't talk about how scared you are and how much you're going to miss me. And then nobody's able to talk about what's important to them. Whereas if one person opens up and says, hey, I know this is going to happen. Let's talk about it and let's make sure it's good for you and make sure that we're doing what we really can do. And we're we can. uh make this time that we've got even more sacred and more special because we're really bonding on those things that are important. If we can do those kinds of things with family, we can shoot for that transgenerational healing that I've always been looking for. So how do you help families heal through this? Because what I see as a doctor is that sometimes families come together, but sometimes families get pulled apart. Uh, you know, when, when their loved one is going through a hard time, you know, they could be dependent on their loved one for an income. They could be emotionally dependent on their loved one. They can have family conflicts that simmer and the loved one is the one who's been kind of keeping a lid on it. And when that goes away, families can fall apart. And I think that's tragic. And so if we can find ways to use these moments of transition and of passage as a way of really helping people step more fully into that next generation, it's like, hey, um, I've got it, you know, my, I, I, I had a great relationship. I, I, or even if I didn't have a great relationship with my, my loved one, I got a better one at the end of their life. Man, I tell you, this is emotional for me. Yeah. You know, my wife, uh, I was there when her mother passed away. I was there the moment she passed and she had mm -hmm. cancer, ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I wish that this was available to my mother-in-law. Uh, because she and my wife had a very difficult relationship with each other their entire life. And they never got to resolve that. And I feel like this would have been an, an amazing way for them to have a better final experience together. That's what hits me thinking about this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's so many opportunities for us because and there are different agents that are going to help us do different things. So psilocybin is a wonderful tool for really getting that sense of, of connection and expansion um, and, and understanding the fullness of these cycles of life. Uh, but another agent, MDMA, is really a, 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 that I would like to do a, a trial that um, brought that to, to families who are facing these issues because that agent works differently. Instead of having like the dramatic, symbolic, uh, and visual kinds of experiences, it really takes you deeply into your heart. And at the very same time, it turns down your amygdala, which is the place in your brain that holds fear. And so it softens that place that holds fear, which allows you to get closer to things that hurt. Um, and so you're able to have a different kind of conversation and hold that conversation in a different way, which is what we're seeing uh, very dramatically in the therapy they're doing for PTSD, 
uh, where they're using MDMA, people are able to go into traumatic memories and process them. And I think that we could have that very same experience for people um, like your wife and her mother um, and think of, of how powerful that would be. How powerful would that be to to really for your, her her mom to have died healed and feeling like I finally got it with my daughter, and for your wife not to have to carry that with her. She's still carrying it, and uh, you know it's we talk about it, you know here and there, yeah. and you know we've talked about my psychedelic experiences, and you know she would like to have her own mm -hmm. as well, and but this this is a this is an emotional point. We're thinking about her mother with it. And I, and I want all people to, to feel like the end of life is something we don't talk about enough. Yeah. We want to believe that it's not going to happen to us, no. but it's 100% going to happen to all of us. Exactly. 100%. And how we deal with that, we have to, we have to face it. But so it makes me think, how are your colleagues facing this? You, Do they you, have the same feelings you are in, in terms of your observations of your colleagues? You know, before we go there, is it okay if I tell you my story of my experience? Please do. Because I um, unfortunately had a relationship with my father that sounds a little bit maybe like your mother. And we, uh, I know that he loved me intensely and he had challenges in his life and it made that love really hard. Yeah. Um, so when I did my experience in the Netherlands just this summer, um, <laughs> first I had a, just a tearful memory of a little dog uh, that I used to have who died. And I had this just cried and cried and cried over the grief of the dog. The little dog turned into a spirit animal and he took me to a picture of my dad. And it's a picture I've seen before. And he's kind of got a goofy uh, look on his face. Um, and it's this picture. And he says, you know, kid, I gave you everything I had and it wasn't much. I didn't have much to give you, but I gave you all the love that I had. And he's like, I, I, I was nothing. Like I wasn't anything. I wanted to play ball. And he was like, he was a good ball player when he was little, but he had some rotator cuff probably problem that we would have tacked together and he would have been a good athlete now. But when he, like, he never got to do that. He grew up poor in South Omaha with, you know, parents who worked in the packing houses and all that stuff. And we were able to come to, like, I could appreciate his experience and how hard his life was. And then it morphed again. And I became his mother, watching him play ball as a kid and giving him the attention that he needed and the attention that he wanted. And that could have made him probably a better father to me if he had gotten what he needed. And just how I wasn't—I I had no intention around that. That's just obviously what was holding in my heart. And then the medicine gave me the ability to have that connection with him. And who knows? Maybe I did do generational work that did work for him. Um, and and so those kinds of experiences I don't think are abnormal. I think yeah. that uh, with the right set and setting, with the right preparation, you can have really powerful work. That you would take years of therapy to do that. Right. Most yeah. definitely. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it just seems obvious that it's such a wonderful thing done properly, good set and setting. Right. But going back to it, thank you for sharing that story. It was amazing. What's the resistance you've encountered if you have encountered it? So first I have encountered much less resistance than I expected. I thought coming back to Omaha, Nebraska, people would be really uptight and you know worried about it. And I get a lot of pushback and I wasn't sure I would get this trial uh, put through our internal review board. Um, I thought that I, we would get some kind of pressure. And I got a lot of curiosity, people asking really good questions, really wanting to make sure we were keeping patients safe, but realizing that what we are currently offering them is inadequate um, and really looking for something else. And so I think good skepticism, um, uh, you know, I, I met, you know, good questions and people asking good questions, but I didn't get any pushback in the official route. Um, sometimes I will run into people and they will be dismissive and they will um, say, oh, well, sure, you know, anybody can get high and feel better. And then you have to do some education and say, well, you know, this isn't like that. Um, this isn't getting high. And it's certainly not like you wouldn't do these doses for fun. You do these doses, you know, these are sacraments. These are, this is hard spiritual work uh, that you're doing. Um, and as people 
uh, I heard someone use the phrase uh, pollinization, meaning like people have seen Michael Pollan. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they've gotten the word or, and they've you know watched some of these things. And so it's being it's much more common. I think there are still a lot of people who have no idea what we're talking about. And when it becomes like right now, we've got a nice cocoon of people who are tuned in and they're really interested. And that's probably four percent of the American population. And there's another 50 percent who, if they knew about it, they would be interested. And then there are people who are threatened. There are people who think about, you know, they they are still fighting the war on drugs and think that, you know, this is this is evil and this is a sign of degeneracy. And this is, you know, going to put you on the pathway to something else. Uh, I think there's a small population of people who might have some religious objection um, who think that maybe this puts your mind at risk for some way. Um, and so I, I anticipate that as these become more well-known, we'll run into bumps along the way. But when people see the outcomes, when they see people living their lives in a different way, then they realize that, you know, this has got some, some, some legs. And particularly in, in this end of life work, we see dramatic transformational change because of the nature of the uh, problems that people are having at end of life. Um, and so I think in cancer care and in, in end of life work, we're going to see really um, impressive changes. I think it's going to take a while longer before we see like what's the right way to work with some of the other issues that people are facing earlier in life. We've seen the depression trials are not nearly as convincing as the trials in the end of life work. And I think that just tells us that we don't understand the FDA has this weird belief that all depression is depression. And whether you're having depression as a 35 year old guy who doesn't have a job and has been drinking and whatever versus the quote depression that people who have cancer have, they say that's the same thing. And I think this work should help us understand their diagnostic categories are wrong, that those are, are quite different things and they're gonna respond in different ways and they're gonna need different modalities. Um, but I don't think, I don't, I'm not, I'm not worried about the pushback at this point. So I've asked this of several people in the space and I think it's a good question to ask every person in this space. What responsibility do people like yourself play in getting this message out so basically it's saying that like we're not in a we're not in an alley and destitute doing things i think that's the mindset of some kind of the whole thing but what is the what is the responsibility of well people or clinicians and providers and being getting out getting out there and doing things like podcasts to have a better hit to educate the public about it yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a great question. Uh, first, we need to get more of us. Um, I, I work in a large healthcare institution and, you know, I'm, I'm one person who knows a lot about this. And so it's training our peers and colleagues uh, doing work like this to make people aware of what the potential is. But a lot of it is we, we still got to get these drugs approved. And there's a, there's a, a push and pull of, I want to tell everybody about it and I want them to, uh, but it's not available. And so you don't want to create the, uh, it's a, it, I have a, a website for, for the research and I routinely have people saying, oh, I have this. Can I, can I have treatment? I have this. Can I have treatment? And you want to, um, I want to be careful with people's emotions because I would love to give this to everybody who has cancer. Um, and the truth is I'm approved for a certain number of people for a very specific kind of cancer. And that's all I can do at this point. And so I think we need to be uh, um, focusing our attention on our policymakers, on our legislature, on our legislators, on the F on the, the DEA in particular, and that we've got to find the right uh, venues for these. And I think that there are some areas uh, Oregon is starting the experiment of how do we put a good container around this? And that's not easy because we've seen what happens when it gets out of the container, right? When uh, it's all like, we'll just pretend like I have a little halo uh, and I'm, you know, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the one who's like poised enough and confident enough to do this work. And you would like to think everybody is going to do that. Right. But, you know, we know people not don't always do the best things with powerful tools. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah. so we're going to have to learn and to grow up as a culture of how do we use these appropriately. Um, Feels like it's uh, almost uh, also a state by state movement. Oregon has certainly led the way with the passing of, the, I think, in 2020, 
the ballot measure. Mm -hmm. And then as of right now, this is breaking news. I think we're very close in Colorado. Mm -hmm. 80% of the vote to, for yes to pass the measure in Colorado to 21 and older and decriminalization of um, psilocybin, I believe. So, like, so what are your thoughts on that? Is, is, does it, besides the approval of these drugs, what's, what role does essentially these states play in the ballot measures and the politics behind it play? Well, you know, that's the way federalism was supposed to work, right? Like the reason that we're a federation of states instead of just one huge monolithic government is so that we can do experiments in states and see what works. Um, there's a, a, a unfortunate conflict for um, people who are working in the states, though, uh, because you'll see some of the same things that happen probably with, uh, with people trying to use cannabis, where banking can be challenging and figuring out how you're going to handle all of that is problematic. And then as a provider, uh, as, a, as a person with a medical life license and a DEA license, am I going to get in trouble with the federal government for doing something that's legal in the state government? And so we're going to have to walk those lines. Um, so I think it, 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 it puts people in some compromising positions in some ways. But in the other, on the other hand, this is exactly what we need on a smaller scale. Let's learn from it. And let's not assume that it's all going to be, you know, rosy. We're going to see some things that didn't go well, but that's the nature of, of, of life, right? You got to try some things. You see what works. If it works, you do more of it. If it doesn't work, you turn that arm down a little bit and you work your way into a, a place where you know better what's going to go on. What are your thoughts about kind of um, how we kind of bridge this gap between kind of pharmaceutical companies who are having an interest in this kind of shamanism aspect retreat ceremony and then yeah. the clinician aspect of it how do we marry these or work together to create a better opportunity for people you ask the best questions that <laughs> it's off the top of the head too i did not plan i never planned that, for any of this because ever. that that is so good and something that i have wrestled with um a lot between because the and actually jen is is i think is, is walking this line really beautifully yeah. Um, we first have to have an enormous amount of respect for these people who have held these traditions and look to them for guidance. And so one of the first things that you will see in indigenous cultures is that these are not recreational substances and they aren't available to just everybody. There are people in the community who have the skills and the practice to be able to use them safely and in a sacred way and in a, in, a, in order to achieve healing. Um, and they were trained in a lineage of people where from the time that they were teenagers, somebody noticed like, hey, you have a gift for this. And they're, you know, they're tutored through their life and they're, they spend lifetimes, they spend years and years studying how to use these medicines. And they have a different relationship with uh, the natural world, you know, thinking about learning directly from the plant, learning directly from nature and spending that kind of time. I got to tell you, I did nothing like that, right? I'm, I'm a medical doctor. I have way more than an average amount of time in, you know, deep fields of meditation and yoga and uh, Native American spirituality and those kinds of things, much more than the average doctors, but I ain't no shaman, right? <laughs> right. Right. And so, how do I respect this tradition, which, by the way, is not in any way American, right? Uh, this is, uh, in our hemisphere, um, mostly South American, Central American, ancient cultures that have nothing to do with Western culture. And so you can't just say, oh, I'm going to pick up this Shipibo man and put him in Colorado and, and he's going to be okay, because the culture doesn't hold it. And so I think for us, it's how do we look at what worked for hundreds and hundreds of years in these cultures, which is developing lineages of people who are accountable, highly accountable to each other. Like you don't want to, I was going to say bad word. You don't want to make <laughs> your medicine man mad at you. Right, like right. you better, like, you know, that's not, you know, you've got to act with respect and with kindness and with integrity. And if you don't, you're going to get yanked back in a big way. And so in medicine, we don't even have, you know, we have a little oversight in medicine, uh, but you got to be a pretty egregious provider to get a, a whack on the on the knuckles from a medical board. And these medicines are much stronger than any medicine that we work with. 
There's nothing, there's nothing in my pharmacopoeia that I work with on a daily basis that comes anywhere near as being as powerful and as influential as these do. So how do we really train people and develop the kind of oversight and lineage that we can trust that we're going to be able to police ourselves and that we're going to be able to uh, bring this safely to people in an honest and integral way. And also, I think with that, like, I mean, this is just purely my opinion about it, but how do you train someone to, I mean, you could discuss it and things of that without having the actual experience yourself. It's, yeah. There's many things you could teach people without having experience in something, but this feels like that would be just so wrong yeah. without it, because it's such like, I compared to what you said about, there's no other medications, things that are like this. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how you would begin to understand what someone's going through with this, if you haven't had the experience on some level. And yeah. I know that can be a dicey thing with clinicians for that. Well, clinicians, you know, I'm not saying everything about um, the Western medical model is is good. Like when I, I again, I mentioned I'm 60 years old, so I trained a long time ago. And I trained in medicine at the time when we stopped doing things to medical students. Mm. Like when I, just, just prior to the time I was teaching, if you were a medical student, you had to actually have somebody put an NG tube down your nose. So you knew what it felt like to have an NG tube down your nose and into your stomach. Um, you had to, you know, you drew blood on each other. And so you knew what that experience was like. And then we stopped that. We said, no, 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 that's abusive. That's manipulative. That's coercive. That's all those things. And maybe in some circumstance it was, but knowing what your patient's going through is a pretty important thing there, but there's a, a big, um, uh, belief in Western research that you don't quote experiment on yourself. And that is an ethos that for this methodology, I just don't think works. Like first, I don't think we're quote experimenting on ourselves. I don't think you should ever say, oh, I took it and it worked for me. Therefore it must be true. Um, but some of the people that um, I have studied with have a great um, metaphor. They said, so imagine that you're, uh, you know, doing your vacation, you know, in the Caribbean someplace and somebody's got a sign up, says, I'm going to take you scuba diving. Um, and you say, so like, tell me about, you know, what you've seen down there. It's like, oh, I don't go down there. Like, well, what, well, what do you mean? Like, no, no, I stay up here and I like, I put the rope over and I do this. And, you know, when the bubbles come up, I know that's when it's time to get you. Like, and you're going to be my guide. Right. Like, like, how's that supposed to work? And so you would never like fork out the, you know, hundred bucks to do the, the scuba diving afternoon with this person. Um, and I think that was that sage advice, um, cause nobody's going to have the same trip. Like, it's not like I had uh, an experience and therefore I know what your experience is going to be like, but I have a sense of how different it is from normal reality. And if you're practiced and you spend some time really studying and learning to navigate and doing those kinds of things, then you're going to be in a better position when somebody's really frightened or when someone's really stuck to be able to help them in a way that somebody who doesn't have any idea what that could be like. Yeah. It's, I just often think like, even just explaining your experience to someone is very difficult. Oh, sure. Like, so like, because it's, it's so out of, the realm of your everyday reality, it's, it's just, it's mind blowing. So to administer, talk about this with people and be like, well, I, you know, I, I don't know anything about it really about the experience seems so odd because there's, there's things you can make a leap for and go, yeah, I mean, I didn't do it, but I could feasibly teach you how to do this. This, this, there's not, that's not reality to me for this. It's yeah. too far deep for that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, I, I think you're, I think you're right on. Um, and, and that's another thing where we've really got to push our, um, our regulatory agencies and help them know that this is how we keep people safe. Yeah. And, um, if they had ever taken it, they would, as, as the doses that we use therapeutically, it's not people, you know, they're afraid like, oh, these people, are, they're people, this people are putting this protocol in just so they can all get high. Like, and that's just, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, people have really profound experiences. People have death experiences. People could, you know, have terrifying experiences. They can have ecstatic experiences. And some people, like some parts of it can be fun uh, and some parts of it can be delightful and, and wonderful, but you don't do these kinds of doses on a, on a habitual basis. 
Um, so really understanding, and again, how do we put the right container around it and offer enough proof to, to, to the regulators? And they're doing their best. They're just trying to keep people from being hurt. And they have screwed up in the past. Like we've made some pretty big mistakes with some meds before. Um, and so they're trying to prevent that. And they, for the most part, have not had these experiences. Like I said, like maybe what, 4% of the population have a pretty good idea of what's going on right now. And so we can't expect that they're just going to get it overnight, especially after they've been indoctrinated with, you know, 30 years of the war on drugs. Yeah. And actually, I, I had a other, another podcast I did before this with uh, a writer, a journalist on psychedelics. I try to talk to many different people in the space, and we went over kind of the kind of this awakening experience that happened uh, in the 60s and 70s in this counterculture movement and how then kind of governmental forces came in and really changed that for yeah. that. And, and maybe you could speak a little bit about that, how uh, how that really has affected the progress of this molecule in the medicine oh, in, sure. that, in that time frame. Well, you know, when I think about it, Overall, so you know that old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Yes. The ability to manipulate um, consciousness is one of the most powerful things you can do. And so whenever that kind of power is available, people are going to seek to manipulate it and or, or be frightened of it. Um, yeah. And so I think what we saw is, you know, when you think about the culture of uh, the late 60s, People were, we had left, uh, I took a course, it was called The Consensus Breaks Down, and it was the history of America in that post-World War II, you know, through Korea into the late 60s. And this thing that we thought was a consensus of like the American idea kind of deconstructed and people were really feeling like, oh, what we thought was this myth of America isn't really there. Uh, and if you're the people in power, that's a really terrifying thing, right? And so if you've got people kind of putting their fingers like, look, this doesn't work, and you're really pointing out that there's some real inconsistencies there, that's a lot of threat to, to experience. And so I think there were a lot of uh, cultural forces that just said, like, we cannot handle this now. And the truth was that culture at that time probably could not handle it. Mm. And so we've been uh in a 40-year hiatus and how do like have we grown as a culture do we and it's i mean it certainly feels like the reception is different we, we're doing a much better job of communicating the potential but i wouldn't be surprised to see some pushback because anytime someone wants to expose things that are painful you're going to get pushback at it and if you are uh taking a lot of people, for example, and increasing their connection with nature, and then you notice what we're doing to nature, that's going to be a problem for it's the problem. people yeah. who are exploiting nature to make more money, to do more things. And so getting a clearer view of maybe what uh, maybe a healthier reality is, is not going to be profitable for some people. And so you're always going to have those kind of conflicts. Like there are people who really want me to like do nothing more than sit and watch, you know, streaming video and, you know, eat Cheetos. That's, 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 and go that's to right. work, you know, go to work in the morning, go home, eat some Cheetos, you know, watch your streaming video and go to bed. And it's hard to live in a life like that. If you've really opened up your consciousness, worked at your it helped to heal some of the wounds that you've got. So maybe you've got a little more creativity, a little more courage, a little more clarity. Um, and so if you've got those things, then it's harder to live in a really uh, stylized world with it that's not full of meaning. That was really well said. I mean, that was, and Lou, that was an excellent way to say that. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess I never thought about that way in the sense that like the nature commentary was huge. And I can speak to this. I cared nothing about nature before my first experience. And after my first experience, I cared deeply about nature. And it actually changed my whole view on yeah. it. But awakening someone's mind to these really important issues of planetary life, spirituality can be perceived as a problem mm -hmm. to entities that want you to be on this wheel, this addiction wheel of technology, drugs, whatever it, it may be yep. for that. 
Yeah. But I wanted to ask you too was kind of this pollinization. Michael Pollan talks about that. He believes that maybe people people have always craved altered consciousness. Oh. Why do you think that is? So I think it's because you can go way back in terms of thinking about like the history of, of Western civilization and going way back to you know Plato's cave, saying like our senses lie to us, that our uh, I listened to an astrophysicist and say, you know, you think you're seeing everything, right? But the truth is that your uh, eyes evolved to see the rays that are emitted by a particular star in our solar system, and our ears pick up certain frequencies because we're in a certain you know pressure zone and that's what you know transmutes sound to us and so all of our senses are really limited and so if we're only perceiving things with our senses we're inherently missing some of what's there so that's that's one piece we're missing parts of reality that really are there and we just don't have senses that are evolved to experience them but then there are parts of our mind that, you know, we've got our awareness that is like consensus reality. You and I all agree on what's going on there. But yeah. when things are too painful, uh, when things are frightening, when they're painful, when they're stressful, we kick them under the rug and they slip into our subconsciousness. And your, all, your conscious mind is always going to be tripping over that stuff that you shoved under the rug. And that's not comfortable. It's not functional. It causes problems. And so I think from time to time, you just need to kind of change the oil, right? You need to like open up the, the valve, let that stuff out, let it percolate. Uh, and so you, you clean your own system out and then maybe you connect with a bigger system than you can see on an everyday basis. And then you're like, great, now I can come back in, be a little bit more tuned in, be a little bit more aware, be a little bit less frightened, be a little bit more adaptable. And I can live my life for another 10 years. Yeah. And then maybe I need to dip into the well again and say, you know what? I need to go on a, a sacred journey again. I need to shake some, some bugs out. I need to do some, some deeper work and some deeper reflection. And I think about it, like I'm, I'm Jewish and we're big on these, these life cycle events and, and how do you move from one phase of your life to another phase of your life? And I think that there are people like me who are inclined to be the clinicians who really need to be more uh, aware and attuned but if you're an average bear going through the world then maybe this is your bar mitzvah maybe like as you become an adult this is like part of the like this is how we're going to tune you into being an adult and then maybe before you get married you and, and your and your spouse are going to do a journey together and really vision what's the nature of your marriage going to be that like and then you know every you know five to ten years you take a, a, another drink from the well but it's not and, and actually there's a model for this that go like the illusion myst mystery cults way back in the the greek um uh, uh dionysian mysteries uh, they went on for uh, thousands of years, we think. Um, and there's a guy, I can never pronounce his name, but the, the name of the book is called The Immortality Key. And talking I have that about, book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get him on your show. Mm -hmm. uh, but the work of like this, that all of the people who were the founders of what we think of as Western culture and Western civilization attended this and went to this these mysterious kind of initiations and they came out with more awareness, more awakeness, more ability to think clearly. Uh, and they steered Western culture, like the things that they wrote and the things that they did are the basis for the way our culture moved forward. And it's so funny. I think inadvertently I have uh, gone on this method. I mean, like every five years or so for me, when I feel like, you know, I need to dip back into this to get a different perspective. I'd love the idea of like, almost like a wedding aspect to this and different. Like I, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, I'll be doing this like every decade of my life. Yeah. Because I think it will reveal different things about me and where I'm at, mm -hmm. at different parts of my life. But, you know, the freaky thing is also I never thought about think about animals. They see the world differently. They pick up different things than we pick up sure. because we have a limited sense of some biology that they have an enhanced sense mm -hmm. for that. I, I honestly never thought about that. When we said it all. Well, and you know, what I think is interesting is that animals will preferentially seek out these mushrooms and eat them. 
And, yes. and you can like, people will talk about like, you know, the cow that's just sitting over there by the fence, just staring off <laughs> chewing those mushrooms. Like, and so who knows what that does in, in their psyche or you know, I don't know if they're having, you know, the kinds of perceptual changes we do, but we know there's neurobiology going on that helps reset things and make things a little clearer and, you know, reconnect some things. And so either they're, either they're just having a really good time, a colorful, you know, <laughs> afternoon chewing their cud. Or, you know, this is actually a really helpful biological mechanism to clean some stuff up. Have you seen some of the, uh, I forgot the name of the researcher, but doing like MRIs with people who have had it? Uh, Absolutely. That seems mind-blowing to see yeah. what's happening. Um, uh, I think Robin something. Carhart-Harris. Um, yeah, yeah. Robin Carhart-Harris. Uh, and this is... You have it. <laughs> I, that's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, in the research that uh, we're doing, we'll be doing fMRI on those patients as well. And so we'll have, um, we'll have some before and after work. But the thing that I think is most interesting is, so we'll have a biomarker, like what's actually going on in their brain uh, about a month before this, the session and about a week after the session. So we know what their baseline is like and we know what their stable state is in that um, neuroplastic state. So we've got the biology and then we've got their experience uh, of what happened and how it impacted depression, anxiety, demoralization, spiritual connectedness, those kinds of things. And then what their families observe about them and then communication with their families and then what's going on in their healthcare. So we've got this real, we're gonna have this really rich data set of how does this influence these people um, and at different levels of their lives going all the way down. So if we can see correlation from the biological to the personal, to the interpersonal, to the systemic, like that's a, gonna be some really cool data. Uh, but, but fMRI is probably one of the better tools we have for how do you objectively see that this is not just suggestibility? It's like, no, there are really real changes that are going on. And we can't do, you know, there are some really interesting neuroscientists who are working with mice and the like, but you can't, uh, you can take their brains apart, but you can't take our brains apart. Right. Uh, and you can have a conversation about whether that's a good idea or not, but uh, we're not going to be able to get those kinds of measurements out of humans. Uh, I mean, this is fantastic. And I, I know we're running here on time here, but, uh, Thank you so much, Lou, for giving me some of your valuable time to talk about Thank this. You. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So how can people learn more about um, what you're up to? I know you got some great stuff you're working on. So Sure. Uh, our research site is called, uh, it's palliadelic.org, P-A-L-L-I-A-D-E-L-I-C.org. Uh, and that'll tell us a little bit about uh, what we're up to. And awesome. there's, you know, you, there's so much information out there, uh, great news sources for, for these. And so you just need to, um, uh, you, you can almost Google, uh, there's, uh, I listen to psychedelics today and, and lucid news, I find them to be, you know, good sources of information and, uh, just read a little bit like that. Michael Pollan book is exceptional. Yes, um, it is. The immortality key provides some great resources, Bill Richards wrote, wrote a lovely uh, book about either the nature of these experiences. So I think that there's, there's plenty out there to look into. It's just people like you who are doing the good work of, you've got a great audience who are really curious and interested people and, you know, just helping them see a little bit more and uh, just, just exposing people I think is really important. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time, Lou, and uh, have a great rest of your day and I will definitely be in touch. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you later.